Good morning. This morning I'd like you to turn with me please in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, to Isaiah chapter 45. In a few moments we're going to be reading from the first portion of Isaiah chapter 45. And while you're turning there, let me just observe that during this time of national shutdown, in my opportunities to preach, I've been speaking to you concerning the providence of God. In our first sermon, we looked briefly at the definition of God's providence as given in the Shorter Catechism. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all of his creatures and all their actions. And so in that definition in particular, we noted that his providence includes primarily two things, preserving, that is, he provides, he keeps alive, and it also includes governing. And in our first sermon, after giving this brief definition, we spent the bulk of our time meditating on the extent of God's providence, noting the statement of Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11, we are predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things are included in God's eternal plan, and God works all things in accordance with that eternal plan. In particular, we noted three aspects of this universal rule. It includes the entire material universe, the universe of spiritual beings, and the universe of material spiritual beings, in other words, mankind. And then in our second sermon, we began to examine the character of God's providence. In particular, we looked at the fact that it is holy and just and good. Now this morning, we're going to concentrate all of our attention on one more of these characteristics, and from various passages of Scripture, I want to show you this morning that God's providence is sovereign. And the first of these passages is what we are going to read now in Isaiah chapter 45. Please follow along in your Bibles. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name and the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Now, before we look at these words and others in the word of God, let's now pray for the help of God in our opening up of Scripture. Most blessed and glorious God, we do bless you and praise you that indeed you are God and there is no other. You are the supreme sovereign of the universe. You accomplish all of your holy will. We bless you that you are not a frustrated God. You are not a God that wishes things had worked out better, a God that uh, didn't anticipate things and so has to recalculate. We thank you and bless you that you know all things and control all things. And that in these times of great uncertainty, therefore, we can cast ourselves upon you. For you are indeed the supreme sovereign of the universe, as we have just read. Bless us now, we do pray, with the presence and help of the Holy Spirit, leading us in our understanding of what you would say to us at this time. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Life is full of calculated risks. Sometimes the risks that we take are, for the most part, non-fatal. In some cases, the risk itself is part of the thrill. For instance, if you go downhill skiing, uh, it involves the risk of a broken leg or a sprained ankle, perhaps, and in extreme cases, the risk of even a broken neck. And if you ski, if you ski so carefully that uh, you eliminate all the risks, you might as well not even ski. It's not even any fun anymore, and that's why I don't ski anymore, because I have to be too careful. Now I'm not very good at it anymore. And so 
Uh, this, is the, this is the part of the thrill, you see, is the taking of the risk. Gamblers, they get their thrill from trying to outwit the machine or outwit other gamblers. And right now, of course, sports gambling is at all-time low. And, if, and of course, I'm not I'm myself shedding any tears over that. But there is no baseball to gabble over, no football, no basketball. And so as I read on in this article, discovered that, that they're gambling on things now they don't even know anything about, like, like darts, professional darts, and gambling over uh, ping pong and, and t- tennis matches. And so this is what they're doing to make up for the fact that there aren't these other opportunities for gambling. But sometimes the risks that are taken are real-life risks. And this seems to be the sub-story that's beneath the surface in the most famous song in the musical, The Greatest Showman. I became acquainted with this song when my favorite little girl in the whole world wanted it played while we were on a vacation a little while ago. And the musical is about a fictional P.T. Barnum and his circus. And the song Tightrope ostensibly is about the thrill that's experienced by somebody that's willing to risk everything by walking that tightrope. Some people long for a life that is simple and planned, tied with a ribbon. Some people won't sail the sea because they're safer on land to follow what's written. But I'd follow you to the great unknown, off to a world we call our own. Hand in my hand, and we promise to never let go. We're walking the tightrope. High in the sky, we can see the whole world down below. We're walking the tightrope. Never sure, never know how far we could fall. But it's all an adventure that comes with a breathtaking view. Well, P.T. Barnum's show, it was tremendously difficult to pull off. And especially he had great setbacks. The facility all burning down at one point. And so his endeavor was full of risks. But in a very real sense, it was his wife that took the greatest risk, trusting him on this wild adventure of this much-criticized show. And so the second stanza speaks of the way that she was willing to risk it all to be with him and to enjoy the thrilling view from the tightrope of this kind of life that they live together. And so she sings, I risk it all to be with you. I risk it all for this life that we have chosen. Well, during these days, we are all confronted with choices that involve risks. And with a plague that's lurking unseen here and there, making a living, shopping for groceries, and many other duties that we perform, they're accompanied by the risk even of our own lives. And yet we accept the risk in these circumstances, and we do so because we want to provide for ourselves and for the ones that we love. And so the risk that we take is a calculated risk. We weigh the potential danger you see that we have if we expose ourselves to this virus, and we weigh it against, you see, the potential consequences of not taking that risk. Now, one recent study compared the ratio between suspected cases of getting the virus and the number of deaths. And among those that were 39 and old and younger, According to this study, there was only a 0.2% chance of dying if you get the virus. And so if you're 39 years or younger, if you get the virus, you only have 1 in 500 chance that you will die from it. And those in my age bracket, they don't do quite so well. They have a 3.6 chance of dying. And in other words, it would break down to being 1 in 28 And those that are 80 years old and above, they have a 14.8 chance of dying, and in confirmed cases, a 21.9% chance of dying. In other words, almost one in four. Now, those who see the government as our primary savior, they want the government to be our nanny. They want the government to keep us all locked away in our homes as much as possible and go on and on and on protecting us from this danger. But there are others, on the other hand, that feel that it should only be those that are at the greatest risk that should be locked in place, while the rest of us should be able to decide about the risks that we are willing to take for the sake of our jobs and our homes and our life savings. And they point to the risks of locking everything down. There are risks to that, they say, too. Increased suicides, increased spousal abuse, increased heart attacks, and a host of other life-threatening risks. And they argue that we should be treated like adults, 
We've been, after all, making these risks all of our lives and, and, and analyzing and calculating them. We do this, after all, every time we get in the car. Every year, around 170,000 people in America die in accidents, which is almost twice of the COVID-19 deaths so far. Now, does this mean that we should all ban, ban all cars until we have a 0% chance of driving without fatalities? We're obviously not. We're willing to take the risk because of all the benefits of having an automobile. Now, one thing that we do do, though, whether it's getting in the car or whether it's other risks, is we try to limit our risks. And when we get in the car, we put on our seatbelt. We refrain from texting while we drive. We drive within the speed limits. And we watch what's in front of the vehicle. We keep an eye on the sides and in the back through our mirrors to see what's happening around us. We defensively drive, in other words. We seek to minimize risks by doing this. In the same way, when we go out in this virus-filled environment, we put on our masks. We stay away from crowds. We seek to limit the risk. And there is, you see, this difference with reference, though, to the virus, that the, the, the danger is much more unseen. It's not a car that's around us. It's an unseen virus. And furthermore, hour after hour, our newspapers and our newscasters are pumping out virus information that fills our hearts with fear. So during these past few months, most of us, I think, have experienced genuine fear. Even those of us that tend to downplay, perhaps, these dangers. And reigniting this fear is the sense that we're not in control. We don't know where this enemy is and how we're going to avoid it. And we hear, for instance, that 60% of the people that have died in our state were those that were trying to stay in their homes. Well, this is why the doctrine that we are preaching is such a comfort to God's people at this time. Even though we are not really in control, God is in control. And it is this thought that I especially want to set before you this morning. It's my purpose this morning to stress this one aspect of God's providence, it is sovereign providence. Now, if you're younger, you might feel that your odds against this virus are pretty good. And if you're older, you know that your odds are not so good. But our comfort, dear people, our peace, our stability, is not in, it doesn't depend upon the odds. Our comfort lies in a sovereign God that is in control of all things. Our trust is in the God that beats all odds. So when we tremble over the risks that we need to take, our trust isn't the God who is in control of all. We can put our hand in the hand of an omnipotent sovereign for whom there are no risks. Now, in the time that remains, I want to set before you several characteristics of God's sovereignty in his providence. In your outlines, you have five. I'm going to be bypassing the fourth of these and concentrating on the others. But first of all, I want you to notice with me that his is a supreme sovereignty. A few minutes ago, we read in Isaiah 45 a prophecy concerning a conqueror that God was going to raise up some 150 years after the prophecy was made. Isaiah prophesied at his time when Assyria was the dominant world power. And in about 85 years from the time that Isaiah is prophesying, the Babylonians would come and they would conquer most of the Near Eastern world. They would conquer Assyria, among other countries. And soon they would take Judah and conquer in particular the city of Jerusalem. And this would happen in 85 years. But then in another 65 years beyond that, a Persian emperor named Cyrus we would conquer mighty Babylon. Now remember how great Babylon was. Nebuchadnezzar had fortified the city with three rings of walls. Think with me of the Pentagon, the way they designed it. If somebody was going to finally get over the first wall, then the soldiers from the second wall could shoot them down while they're in the gully between. Three mighty walls protected this city. And within this city was a space of about, about 200 square miles about the size of Chicago. And these walls were so massive, they were 40 feet high, 
And Herodotus tells us that they actually had chariot races on the top of these walls. They were so great. These were things that you could just take a battering ram and, and knock them over. And so this is an astounding thing that it is prophesied that it would be Cyrus, not Nebuchadnezzar, that would be the mighty power at that point. And remember how Nebuchadnezzar boasted over the city. He bragged about it. The book of Daniel, is this not the great city that I built? And look at what, what we just did. But as Daniel prophesied, Cyrus welded together the Medes and the Persians into a single force. And they went on to conquer Lydia, which is modern Turkey. And, they, and then they went on after that to conquer Babylon in 539 B.C. And these successes were prophesied with astonishing accuracy by Isaiah and Daniel. Now you remember how Nebuchadnezzar thought of himself as supreme. But God made, made sure, took great pains to teach him that he was not supreme. The same God who raised up Nebuchadnezzar to chasten his people, he was going to raise up Cyrus to deliver his people. But lest anybody think that Cyrus was supreme, this passage declares that he's just God's servant. He thinks he's the mightiest emperor. He's just a servant. He's just a slave. And lest anybody think it's Cyrus's power that won him the throne of the greatest empire on earth, the omniscient God who predicted Cyrus by name 150 years ahead of time, this God is the omnipotent sovereign who subdued the nations before him. Notice again what we read in verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, sub to subdue nations before him. You see, it wasn't Cyrus that did it. I subdued these nations, God says, to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight, I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. And then in verse 4, God goes on to declare that this would take place not for Cyrus's sake, but for Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect. Think of this. These massive empires, the one overtaking the other, it wasn't because of Cyrus that this all took place. It was all because of Israel, his elect. And furthermore, God lets Cyrus know that he isn't supreme. There's only one supreme. And so we read in verses 5 and 6, I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other Solemn words. God alone is worthy of supreme sovereignty. And because he is the creator of all things, he is the rightful owner of all things. Now, let's say you owned a piece of property. And on this property, there were some woods, pine trees, among others. And you want to build a log cabin on your property. So you cut down some of your pine trees. And out of those pine trees, you construct a log cabin. Now, who's going to dispute your right to use that log cabin for what purpose you want to use it for? Who's going to say, well, I don't like the idea that this is a guest house. Or I don't like the idea that you like to get away for a getaway there in that house and, and have a little quiet time. And even so, if anybody would question God's sovereign rights over his creatures that he made, he will answer, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Our God is the creator of all things, and therefore he is the owner of all things, and therefore he is the Lord of all things. His sovereignty is supreme. The psalmist put it this way, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115 and verse 3. And like the potter, the Lord has power over the clay. He has the right to do what he pleases with what he has made. He says, see now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. Deuteronomy 32. 
I am the first, and I am the last, and besides me there is no God. Isaiah 44, 6. And he declares that here in Isaiah 47 or 45 and verse 5, I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God besides me. And again later on in verse 21, there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. So as William Plumer put it in his wonderful little book on the providence of God, it is as clear that God rules alone as that he rules at all, that he rules everywhere as that he rules anywhere, that he governs all agents, all causes, and all events, and that he governs any of them, an angel would be burdened with the sole charge of one man, because an angel is a finite creature and is none but derived attributes. But the care of the universe is no burden to the Almighty, because he is God. And this is why Daniel writes, All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? Now the supremacy of God's sovereignty, this has a dark side to it as well as a bright side. The bright side, you see, in this prophecy of of what God would do through Cyrus, the bright side in the distant future was that God was going to raise Cyrus up and he was going to do so to judge Judah's oppressor, Babylon, and in order that the Judah, that God's people, might go back to the promised land after they had been captive for 70 years. But there was a dark side, and the dark side was going to come first. Because of her idolatry, God would chasten his people by the cruel, ruthless Babylonians. And this, too, came from the supreme sovereign of the universe. And likewise with us, there are times of personal loss, times of sickness, financial setbacks, the experience of forsakenness, even the pain of bereavement. Now, we may ask God to guide us, you see, throughout the days to come. And his answer to such a prayer, it might be to lead us down into the dark valley of the shadow of death. And the same is true for the church. Although the Bible teaches us that the church is the beloved bride of Christ, redeemed by his blood, the object of his special care and love. Nevertheless, the church has often been subjected to persecution. And some of God's people suffer in places where their torments are unknown to the whole rest of the world. And it seems that God doesn't notice anymore. And from time to time, you see, the church is led also by foolish and corrupt men. This is another trouble for the church. Sometimes it's rent asunder by internal dissension and fratricide as its members bite and devour one another. And at such times, the faith of the church and the supremacy of God's sovereignty is very difficult. But God is pleased to lead his church through such times. And he does this to deepen the faith of his people in order to bring forth also their righteousness as stars shining in the midst of darkness. Now this past Sunday evening, I stumbled upon some YouTube music videos produced by a Russian singer named Simon Korolsky. And as I went to the YouTube, I was actually checking out something I'd read a review of in in World Magazine. But I stumbled upon some YouTube uh, presentations by this singer. And I was powerfully afflicted by his music its words, its orchestrations, its instrumental solos, its vocal solos, its harmonies, and its stunning photography. This is a singer whose vocal range is phenomenal. Think of with me of Pavarotti, but also Pavarotti that can have a deep bass voice. I've never heard somebody with such a wide range. And some of his songs have a male group, some of them female singers, some of them both. And some are in English, but most of them are Russian with subtitles, or or else you can get the words by scrolling on down. 
And for an hour and a half, I listened to one hymn after another. I was mesmerized by these, by these hymns. And what especially struck me was the emphasis in many of them on the darker and more solemn side of God's character. And likewise, the depths through which God's children sometimes go, the sufferings that they endure. For instance, a song entitled, Who is Like Thee? It commemorates the deliverance of God's people of the Red Sea, expounding the words of Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? It begins in a dark cave and eventually ends with the sight of a glorious mountain, picturing the text in a, in a wonderful way. Another hymn that he sang is, Lord, make me to know my end, a hymn based on Psalm 39. Lord, make me to know my end, and what is the measure of my days, that I may know how frail I am. A song based on the book of Job, in which he anguishes before God, and he finally comes to the place where he confesses that his Redeemer lives. A song based upon, upon Jonathan and, and Saul having died, and David's lament, how have the mighty fallen? I've never heard a song on that. It doesn't seem like that's something we would sing about these days. A song based on Sephaniah 1. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. How many of us have heard a song about that text? Another one on the sign of the sun. This is the name of the, of the hymn based on Matthew 24. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. And then the sign of the son of man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. And then from those dark scenes, there are musical representations of the book of Revelation. Scenes in which the, the words, you are worthy, from I, I believe it's chapter 1, are, 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 are put to music form. And a, a hymn on the new heavens and the new earth. Other portions of the book of Revelation. It's impossible for me to express how stunning these presentations were to me. And what impressed me was the setting of these hymns. Sung in mid scenes of Russia. And I was made to wonder, would these hymns ever have come from 21st century America? The Christians in Russia, they can relate to the dark descriptions in the book of Revelation, descriptions of the church going through deep seasons of suffering under the likes of Stalin and Lenin. Tens of millions, you know, they died under those purges many of them after great suffering and torture. And what do these songs actually dramatize? Sick police coming after the singer in the woods. And in the end, he is martyred. He's put to death by this, this policeman. A brief funeral takes place. And then at the end of the song, he's clothed in white and, and surrounded with white, the whiteness of heaven. Well, in such dark times, dear people, let's ever remember that the supreme sovereign of the universe is at work. He's accomplishing his purposes in the earth. He's sanctifying a people for his own glory. And likewise, we can pray that our sovereign God will use these recent trials, these trials that have come upon the whole world, to purify a people that will glorify him forever and ever. Our God in his sovereignty is supreme. Hallelujah. Well, we've noted the supremacy of his sovereignty. And now I want you to notice with me that his is a purposeful sovereignty. Now, so often in the midst of the kind of crises that we're going through, leaders lurch from one extreme to the other in the way they respond to the crisis. And often they do this in response to protests, perhaps, that have been raised. Unexpected consequences take place, and so they have to recalculate. 
And we've seen a lot of this in recent days. But our God is not reactionary like that in his, in his government. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11, we read, He works all things according to the counsel of his will. And bringing to pass the whole matrix of all the events in all their complexity, God has certain purposes, certain ends in view. And in the midst of these events, it is often part of the puzzle of divine providence that it's extremely difficult to see how what's happening at this point contributes to some good purpose. And in the midst of his grief over the destruction of Jerusalem, Jeremiah struggled with this. How can any good come out of this? He wonders how things possibly can represent the God that he knows and loves. And then at last he comes to understand that the hard things that he's experiencing, these are not a full representation of God's heart. They are not a full representation of his purpose. And at last he pens these words, Though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Yes, he grieves us, but not from his heart. He has no pleasure in grieving his people. He grieves us, but not from his heart. That's what uh, what Jeremiah says. And he, he says, he goes on to, to speak of this, that, that he's struggling, you see, with how to understand these thoughts and the feelings that he's experiencing and, and, and how this represents God. But all along, he comes to understand that in perfect conformity with God's will, his purposes are coming to pass. But what we now experience, it might seem sometimes very hard, even harsh. God is holy as well as tender. And there's a perfect beauty and coherence in all of his attributes. But what he does, you see, is not without complexity, not without mystery. And his actions, you see, are more like a symphony rather than a solar performance. And even at judgment, he never loses sight of the fact that he has this purpose in mind. He has goals that he's going to accomplish. He sells Israel, you remember, into the hands of Jabin the Canaanite as a chastening for their sins. But then in turn, he brings Jabin to account as a spike is put through his, his forehead, Sisera's forehead, and Jabin's forces are defeated. When Israel honors God's name again, God returns again in blessing. He feeds again his people with manna, so to speak. He leads them out again against their enemies. He guides them with the cloudy and fiery pillar, so to speak. Now, all of God's purposes for his people are for their good. But supremely, let's always remember the purpose behind the exercise of God's sovereignty above all is the manifestation of his own glory. Now, for us, it's it's a defect to be full of ourselves. But God is the most perfect being. And so there can be no higher end for which God can pursue than his own glory. He is passionately devoted to his own glory. He declares, I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory I will not give to another. Isaiah 42, 8. His glory is the supreme reason why he chastens us so severely. Yes, he chastens us to make us holy, to make us like Jesus. But the supreme thing above all is his glory. And so we read in Isaiah 48, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. Now, I want you to notice with me now a third feature of this sovereignty. His is an invincible sovereignty. Now, recently we have seen how ineffective some of the edicts have been of some of our governors. And mere creatures, they tend to govern by edicts, they govern by threats, by electrical shocks, by financial coercion, 
by fines, by sexual favors, by flattery, all these kinds of things that they use to try to manipulate people into doing what they want them to do. But it would be wrong for us to imagine that this is the way God governs his creatures and no more. Now we've seen lately that the more some of our governors try to enforce some of their arbitrary edicts, the more people rebel. It just isn't going over very well. But how different God's government is. He says to Shennacherib, the king of Assyria, I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way in which you came. 2 Kings 19.28 Remember on that occasion, God used a very rough instrument. He sent an angel of death that killed 185,000 of Shennacherib's soldiers, or the Assyrians. But God, he can be just as effective in different ways. He doesn't have to use a rough hand. He can just change the heart of the king. As we read in Proverbs, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turns it whithersoever he will. His sovereignty is invincible. It can't be conquered or overpowered. Who is it, therefore, that can resist the Almighty? All things fall out according to his will. His will is efficacious. It's irresistible. As Nebuchadnezzar learned from his merciful humiliation, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say, none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? We read that at Daniel 4 and verse 35. There is absolutely nothing that can stand in the way of God's providence to hinder it. When God's appointed time for Joseph release came, the prison couldn't hold him anymore. As is described in, in, in Psalm 105, the king sent and loosed him. It's as if God sent it and it brought him out, right then and there. William Plumer, he, he, he observes this. His providence not only consults, it also executes. And using the word execute, not to, in terms of killing people, but accomplishing a task. It not only consults and deliberates, but it executes. It not only devises, it also puts into operation. It not only sees how evil may be prevented, it also prevents evil. The author of providence is the Lord who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. All the other attributes of God would not avail us, you see, if it were not for his omnipotence. And his omnipotence enforces his will. All of the properties you see of his providence it would give us ineffectual consolation, you see, if it lacked divine power. God could be loving and make all kinds of promises, but if he can't fulfill those promises, what good is that? All the conspiracies, you see, and all the combinations, therefore against providence, these things are vain. John Piper has written a very helpful little book designed for God's people and also for the lost obviously written in great haste. It's entitled Coronavirus and Christ. And in his chapter on divine sovereignty, this is what he writes. The coronavirus was sent by God. This is not a season for sentimental views of God. It is bitter season, and God ordained it. God governs it. He will end it. No part of it is outside his sway. Life and death are in his hand. Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gave, and the Lord took. The Lord took Job's ten children. And in the presence of God, nobody has a right to life. Nobody can say, well, you got to keep me alive, God, because I'm so important. I'm so worthy. Nobody can say that. Every breath that we breathe is a gift of grace. Every heartbeat, everything that we do and say, and, 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 that we do because of our beating heart and, and still breathing lungs, it's all undeserved. Life and death are in the hands of God. And therefore, 
all efforts to undermine God's providence will be ineffectual. Satan himself was on God's leash. He could not touch Job without getting God's permission first. And likewise, he can't touch you, he can't touch me without God's permission. And therefore, we can say to Satan what Joseph said to his brothers that it sold him into slavery. As for you, you meant evil against me. You, Satan, meant evil. But God meant it for good. Now, we must be very careful not to water this down. That statement in Genesis 50 doesn't say God used it for good. Somehow he took something that was bad and somehow put a few more ingredients in it and made it better. It doesn't say he used it for good. He didn't say God turned it for good. It says God meant it for good. They had an evil purpose, you see, the ones that afflicted us. But God had a good purpose. God didn't start cleaning up halfway through this sinful affair, you see. He had a purpose from the very beginning with Joseph and his brothers and likewise with us in our trials. And so God's sovereignty is purposeful. And then we're going to just mention briefly before moving on to our final point that his also is an imminent sovereignty. He's transcendent. That means he's high and lifted up in his majesty. But he's not so removed and distant and uninvolved in carrying out his plans that he's not near us. And imminence means to be close in us and even within us. He's near as he carries out his purposes. Well, we don't have time to develop this. It's a marvelous theme to study out if we had time to do so. But I want to just mention one more feature before we come to some words of practical application. The thing I want to emphasize finally is that his is a stable sovereignty. Now, if you want to walk securely, there's only one way for you to do this, and that's to conform your will to God's will to conform yourself to the settled provisions and principles of God's will. He's not going to change what's right and wrong. You're the one that needs to change, not God. Proverbs 10, 9, He who walks with integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his ways will become known. There was never a sin that didn't bring misery. Dear people, dear brothers and sisters, mark it down. God has never, even once, changed a single principle of his moral law. And never does the hand of a lazy man make rich. Never does anything polluted coming into the heart give us true contentment and joy. Never did any falsehood lead to settled peace. These principles cannot be over, overturned. These are stable, settled principles. And on the other hand, Never did living in conformity to God's will lack its compensation and reward. In all the upheavals of this life, the Lord is our rock. And with politicians, let's keep this in mind as we get disturbed of what's going on, while they plot and scheme against their political enemies in Washington in order to bring their enemies down. Eventually, dear people, this wickedness will be exposed. And sometimes, as I hear of the wickedness that's going on in high places, I just, I, I, to be honest with you, I really get angry. And I suppose, I, I hope that there's some righteous anger that's involved in that. It's really wicked. But this brings my soul peace, not getting angry, you see. This is what brings my soul peace. To know that there's no plot, there's no scheme that can shake God from his throne or shake him from his purpose. Our God is a rock. Hallelujah. He's a rock. He's stable. His sovereignty, is, his, his providence is stable. And therefore, great was the psalmist's comfort when he remembered the stability of God's government. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness is unto all generations. You have established the earth and it abides they continue this day according to your ordinances, for all are your servants. Psalm 119, verses 89 to 91. Well, having brought before you these four points and just mentioning one further one, I want to conclude by some words of application that are drawn from really what we've studied this, these last minutes here together. 
In the first place, I want to just ask you, could it be that as I'm preaching and as you're listening to this sermon, that you are among those that are resisting God's will? And I hope you see, don't you see us, I, I ask you, don't you see from what we've seen in God's word here, don't you see the folly, the futility of resisting God's will? What Solomon said long ago, it can't be ripped out of God's word. There is no wisdom nor understanding nor counsel against Yahweh. No wisdom. You can have a thousand counselors. You can have all the wisdom that the world has to offer. It, it won't be, it won't overpower God's counsel, his purpose. And so, my dear friend, whenever God's will is known, submit to it. And do it not reluctantly, but willingly and cheerfully. And remember, you remember the hard bondage that the Jews were forced to endure in Babylon. And what made their case even worse was the fact that there were false prophets among them that fomented rebellion against them, and they wanted to stir them up to rebel against the king of Babylon. And God said, no, I purpose for you to stay here 70 years. You're going to be here. You're not going to rebel. And you've got to stop following these, these false prophets that foment rebellion against the Lord. And you remember how the, the Jeremiah wrote them a letter. He urged them to build houses in Babylon and to submit to the rulers and to seek the peace of the city in which God had brought them. There's an analogy, an, an analogy to, to what we're going through in these days. We are living in evil days. I don't think I need to go into details to, for you to understand that. As we witness what's going on in the capital, at times it seems that all hell is, is breaking loose. Reporters who've the solemn responsibility of giving the unvarnished truth, they're devoted to the promotion of wickedness and lies. We are living in days of rebellion against righteousness and truth, and above all, against God and his word and his standards. But who has hardened himself against the Lord and prospered? We read in Job 9, verse 4. Don't be like rebels that never will prosper. Don't imagine that you can rebel against God and against those that God has appointed to be your leaders. Don't imagine you can prosper. The meek he will guide in judgment. Do not be as the horse and the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle. Don't even just barely submit, but willingly, cheerfully acquiesce in God's providence, in God's direction. And this is an exhortation not only to sinners to stop rebelling against God, but even as saints, we sometimes, we, we get stubborn. We need to remember this. We need to take the posture of our Savior, who in the very darkest providence anybody's ever been in, he said, not my will, but thine be done, O Lord. And so when you're holed up in your house and you're getting on each other's nerves, and when you're getting down in the mouth, Put your hand over your mouth, lest you begin to complain. Don't be like Jonah, who said to the Lord, I do well to be angry. Don't act like the things should have been a different thing, different way. This has just messed up my career. This has just messed up our plans to, to get a new kitchen. This has just ruined our life. And when you do this, you're rebelling against God's providence. And in practical terms, this is saying that you wish God wasn't on the throne, that he wasn't making the decisions about this matter, and that he's not really a good and wise God, because you would have figured it out a better way, better way for this to turn around. Uh, uh, let me ask you, why don't you grieve at the trials of other people? Why don't you get frustrated about their trials? You willingly allow God to rule over them. Why don't you willingly embrace his rule over you? In effect, you say, well, let him rule over others. But you say in your heart, as it were, let him serve me. I have some things that need to be changed about this whole arrangement. And so I urge you instead to say with the psalmist, I was dumb. I opened not my mouth because you did it. Psalm 39, verse 9. And this is true submission. It's not saying, what else can I do? I guess I'm just going to have to go along with it but instead saying, Lord, you did it. You, my good, wise, loving, sovereign king, 
You did it. And you have the right to give. You have the right to take. Blessed be your name. But then secondly, by way of closing application, God's sovereignty and his providence is a bulwark against fear. One trip to Plymouth, Massachusetts, the Plymouth Plantation, we were on board the replica of the Mayflower. And you know how if you go there, there are people that impersonate live, actual historical figures. And so there was a man that was impersonating Elder Brewster that was there on the Mayflower. And somebody in the audience asked him how he tried to help the passengers as they went through the terrible storms that they had to endure crossing the Atlantic. And his answer was that fear is from the devil. And then here was the thing that struck my ears. He said, it's the doctrine of God's providence that takes away our fear. Let me see this man knew something about Puritan thinking. It's his providence that takes away fear. David could say, the Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Though a host shall encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise up against me, in this I will be confident. Psalm 27. In his old age, even, David could say to the Lord, you have covered my head in the day of battle. It's as if he knew that all the battles he'd gone through. Why wasn't it that the axe happened to hit his head or an arrow happened to strike his head? God had put a shield around his head. He protected him. You covered my head. Stonewall Jackson was known for his fearlessness in battle. And explaining to somebody what it was that gave him such courage, this is what he said. My religious beliefs teach me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time of my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to be always ready, no matter when it may overtake me. And then to think of another historical incident. In that terrible battle, and by his folly and obstinacy, Braddock was both defeated and mortally wounded. A Native American deliberately aimed his rifle 17 times at George Washington, and yet not one bullet found its mark. And even this pagan native was struck with amazement afterwards. He said, the great spirit will not allow that man to be hurt. The doctrine of God's providence, you see, emboldens the timid. It enables the wavering to take a stand. It converts cowards into heroes. Now, what is a source of courage and peace? What a, what a source it is, you see, to, to know that our sovereign God, he's in charge of these viruses. Even though it's overtaken now almost 90,000 people, he's still in charge. And when it's time for you to make your next store, your grocery store run, or when you go into the workplace, for instance, in which you know you're going to be walking past some people that hopefully they have their masks on, but you don't know if maybe they sneezed right before you walk through. What is it that's going to suppress your fear in such circumstances? It's this blessed truth that the God who says to the virus, what he says to the waves, this is what he says. This far you should go and no further. Henry Martin, one of the earliest missionaries to India and to Persia, he died of a plague, somewhat like coronavirus. He died when he was only 31 years old on October 16, 1812. And in January of that very year, this is what he wrote in his journal. To all appearance, the present year will be more perilous than any that I have seen. But if I live to complete the Persian New Testament, my life after that will be of less importance. But whether life or death be mine, may Christ be magnified in me. If he has work for me to do, I cannot die. And so, even though this year perhaps is more perilous than you've ever seen, as Martin said, you too, you're immortal as long as God has got some work for you to do. During these days, you also have the opportunity to manifest a different spirit from the people of the world. 
I read of one believer in his late 50s recently who often sees his non-Christian co-workers responding to the virus in a very fearful manner. And it wasn't that he was oblivious and just took risks unnecessarily. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord, Jesus has taught us. But he said that the people that resist that fear stand out among his workers. And he is, and his Christian co-workers, they would quote Bible verses to one another, to encourage one another. And he said that his co-workers, they would see him reading his Bible in the break room, and they would ask him about it. And so he would encourage them to read the Psalms when this pandemic anxiety come over them, when they go home at night or whenever it might be. Now, some of us, we're more troubled not so much by the virus, but we're troubled over what we see in our government. And when Israel asked for a king, Samuel told them that their request would result in oppressive totalitarianism. And there are ominous signs abroad that many are clamoring for a bigger and more powerful government. Increasingly, people are willing to surrender their freedom of speech and their religious freedom for what can only end up eventually of being totalitarian or even fascist. Politicians are willing to go to any lengths to plot, to scheme, and to get their purposes accomplished. Newscasters, they're playing this dreadful game. It's a dangerous game. And when we see this taking place, these things are taking place in our society, it's easy for us to get distressed. It's easy for us to wonder if everything's just, just totally becoming un- unhinged. But what if our worst fear actually did come to pass? What if the church in America is in for a trial by fire? What if you and I have to take stands that bring down upon us the heads of the the wrath of of, of crooked judges? God has given you, he's given me this precious doctrine to enable us to stand fast in such days. And then finally, for you believers, the third application, this precious doctrine is suited to fill your hearts with gladness. When we remember that our God is supreme, when we remember that he is purposeful and invincible in his sovereignty, we are glad. We delight to have our God on the throne. And with the millions of job losses that have taken place, many across the land, they're struggling with anxiety, they're struggling with depression suicides are up already. And they don't know how they're going to pay the rent. They don't know how they're going to pay for their groceries. They don't, their business is, is falling apart. And yet the believer can say with Habakkuk, though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stall, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Our deepest and most profound joy is joy in God. I think you can probably, you the believers, you can testify with me. There have been no heights of joy like unto those heights of joy. In these troubled times, there's nothing that will help us and to bring us back to the gladness that that we, we ought to enjoy as Christians is the thought that our God reigns. He's the supreme sovereign. He's the, a purposeful sovereign. He's a, a sovereign whose, whose government is stable and irresistible. Seven years before he died, when he was 24 years old, Henry Martin, same missionary, he wrote, Were God not the sovereign of the universe, how miserable I should be. But the Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. And Christ's cause shall prevail. Oh, my soul, be happy in the prospect. What joy such thoughts of an enthroned God should bring to our hearts. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that you are indeed a supreme sovereign. You not only are a tender God who cares for us and loves us, but you are a God that is irresistible in accomplishing your purposes. 
Your, your will is not frustrated ever. We do thank you and bless you that as you work out the details of providence, mysterious though they might be to us, we can have this trust that it will always be holy, it will always be just, it will always be good, and it will always be in conformity to your eternal purpose. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to find rest in this. Help us to believe in it. Help us to trust ourselves into your hands in these days. Enable us, O Lord, to manifest a different spirit from those that are fearful around us. Enable us, O Lord, to manifest trust and calmness and peace and serenity in you. Help us, O Lord, to be glad, too, in you. May we be happy Christians. May we be those that display the joy of the Lord in the midst of these dark days. We pray, too, that even some of our children would see our conduct, that some maybe that are even hearing this sermon, that they would begin to examine whether they are fighting against your providence and how this, would, this is a foolish thing to try to do. Lord, we do pray that in all these ways you would be pleased to lead us and instruct us, you'd be pleased to save, you'd be pleased to do mighty things in your kingdom in these dark days. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <music>